This week's episode is brought to you by Wink. Now, I hesitate to reveal this to you all, but I am a distinctly unclassy person. Wine, in particular, has always mystified me. But thanks to the fine folks at Wink, I no longer have to be such a déclassé fellow. They will curate fine wines for you based on your responses to a simple questionnaire and ship them right to your doorstop at fantastic prices. Now I can pretend to be a far classier person than I actually am and impress all my friends with my sophisticated wine tastes. And you can too. Wink is offering listeners for the podcast a $22 discount. Just use offer code History of Japan, that's one word, History of Japan, at checkout, or use the link at my website, IsaacMeyer.net. Check it out, have a bottle, and crack it open while you listen. We can be classy folks together. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 284, Rags to Riches, part 2. At the time of Hojo Soun's death in 1519, the clan he'd helped establish had grown incredibly in strength. They were already the masters of two provinces, a truly remarkable feat. Soun's successors would build on this impressive legacy and continue to expand the Hojo family's power. We are not going to narrate this blow by blow, because much of it follows a series of rather familiar repeating patterns that are not exactly thrilling to hear over and over again. Instead, I'm quickly going to describe the situation the Hojo faced in the Kanto, and then how they organized their clan to deal with that situation, before returning to an overview of the family history. So first, the situation in the Kanto. Broadly speaking, the Hojo at this point have three major neighbors. To the north are the Uesugi clan, in many ways the most powerful family of samurai in eastern Japan. In the northwest are the Takeda of Kai province, a relatively minor family at this point, but nothing to be trifled with. To the west are the lands of the Imagawa, putative masters of the Hojo. The friendship between Hojo Soun and the Imagawa lord Ujichika meant that the western border was secure, at least as long as that relationship held. At this point, the Uesugi to the north were the primary threat to Soun's son and heir Ujitsuna. As a clan, they held so much power they had once served as the second-in-command to the Ashikaga family deputies sent to govern the east. However, the Sengoku period had also revealed some powerful fractures in the Uesugi family. Like many of the old and wealthy samurai clans, it had grown to the point of fracturing into competing branches, the Yamanouchi, Inukake, and Ogigayatsu branches. The Inukake were eliminated fairly early in the Sengoku period, so we're not going to worry about them too much. Of the two remaining branches, the Yamanouchi were established more in the north of the Kanto, the Ogigayatsu in the south. Still, even divided, the Uesugi represented a substantial threat, the Hojo were a relatively unestablished clan by comparison. The initial force Hojo Soun used to take his first lands was all of 300 men strong. The descendants of that original force of samurai still largely served the Hojo clan. However, the clan also inherited vassals from the previous lords of their conquered provinces, and the loyalty of these inherited followers was, at best, highly contingent on continued Hojo victories on the battlefield. 
So how did the clan go about securing its position in this very precarious spot? The answer is that the Hojo became some of the most sophisticated administrators in Japanese history, and I know that's not the most thrilling thing to hear, but I promise this will still be interesting. Before we get into this, a word of warning. I will be presenting the Hojo system to you in more or less its completed form, which took until the reign of the third Hojo daimyo to come into place. I don't want to introduce these systems to you piecemeal as they're implemented because that seems confusing as hell, so be aware that this system is a result of partial reforms over decades, not one single sweeping reform package. Basically, the Hojo faced two interrelated problems how to mobilize the most samurai possible to fight for the Hojo cause, and how to ensure the families elevated to be subordinates of the Hojo remained loyal and trustworthy and did not get uppity. The solution to these issues was an innovative program of land surveying and division designed to secure the primacy of the Hojo within their territories. In the past, clans had followed a pretty simple formula. Retainers were given a size of landed estate and expected to produce a number of warriors commensurate with the size of that estate. Think of it as if a specific chunk of real estate came with a samurai per acre requirement instead of a tax bill or a homeowner's association bill or whatever else. However, raw acreage in and of itself is not a great determinant of land value or productivity. To take one very extreme example... One acre of land along, say, the Nile River is worth a hell of a lot more in terms of agriculture than 1,000 acres of the desert that surrounds it. So the Hojo put in the work to do a large-scale cadastral survey. This is a fancy way of saying that they sent trusted officials all over their territory to report on the actual productivity of Hojo lands, rather than simply estimating that productivity based on acreage. This gave them a far clearer picture of what their lands were actually worth, and thus how much they could ask from their subordinates. Effectively, it allowed for a far more efficient mobilization of the wealth of Hojo provinces for war than other clans with less effective administrative systems. Indeed, these improvements in administration would eventually spread to other Sengoku lords by the end of the century. This is one more example of that age-old adage that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. However, this fancy system of land surveys still left the Hojo with one of the most basic issues of any feudal lord. Handing over land to a subordinate meant handing them ownership of a source of wealth, and that wealth gave subordinates power. That power, in turn, made it harder to control them. Basically, the very thing that the most loyal Hojo subordinates were likely to demand for that loyal service, rewards in the form of land, were also very likely to make them less loyal. The Hojo lords, however, had an ace up their sleeve in the form of these land surveys. These surveys allowed them to carefully calculate the acreages given to their subordinates, and more importantly, to make that land non-contiguous. I know, I know, not very exciting, but think of it this way. You have a subordinate that has performed a service for you, and normally that service would be rewarded with a gift valued at, say, uh, 1,000 pieces of silver per year. I'm just making that number up. If the land you give them is contiguous, a single unbroken estate valued at 1,000 pieces of silver a year, wherever you put them, they're going to become one of the more powerful landholders in that area. 
However, if you diffuse their land holdings, 250 pieces of value here, another 250 here, and so on, you spread their influence out and make it harder for them to build up a strong base with which to oppose you in any one area. This actually not only makes it harder for lords to rebel against the Hojo, it makes them more dependent on the Hojo. They're not influential enough to dominate the area around their estates independently and thus secure their income, and are reliant on the backing of the Hojo central government, for lack of a better term, to keep drawing the income from their own estates. So this careful surveying also made it easier for the Hojo to keep their senior retainers in place at the Hojo headquarters at Odawara Castle. The survey information meant that local lords did not need to be on-site to manage their domains and ensure they got the most out of their territories. They already knew exactly what they could expect in tax receipts. Generously, this makes it easier for the Hojo to coordinate with their senior commanders. Less generously, it makes it easier for the Hojo to keep an eye on their retainers and ensure that nobody was getting funny ideas. The cadastral surveys had one other important effect. They allowed the Hojo to build close relationships with what were called the Jizamurai, the landed samurai, warriors with minor land holdings who were direct vassals of the Hojo, but who did not hold substantial amounts of lands of their own. These surveys made it easier to know what precisely could be expected of Hojo Jizamurai and to fine-tune their holdings, say giving them a small stipend increase in exchange for a sideline gig within the growing domain bureaucracy that was necessary to actually manage this complicated arrangement. If all of this is making your eyes glaze over, that's okay. The short version is that the information provided by these surveys was more precise than generalized estimates, and that allowed the Hojo to both raise armies more efficiently and keep a closer eye on their own followers. Also, if this sounds familiar to you from somewhere, well, there's a reason for it. Many warlords during this period engaged in similar reforms, though the Hojo were among the pioneers in the field. The structure of using surveys to arrange a delicate balance of economic power was so successful that the core concept would be carried over to the Tokugawa period and provide the basic pattern by which post-Sengoku Japan would be governed. Now, there are three more important things to know about how the Hojo ran their territories. First, when their big armies were actually put together, what did they look like? Well, the predominant weapon was the spear. In many ways, the spear is the most important weapon of the Sengoku era right next to the gun, and it's important for pretty similar reasons. It's easy to mass-produce, relatively easy to learn how to use, and extremely effective when used by large numbers of people. We of course more commonly associate swords with the samurai class, but they are not actually great battlefield weapons. It's hard to use them well in close formation with other combatants, so you have to spread out and are more easily overwhelmed as a result. Plus, their reach is comparatively short, and to boot, mastering the fine art of cutting with a sword takes a lot of work. Spears, of course, you just stick them with the pointy end. Another great lord of this period, Asakura Toshikage, summed up the case for the spear well in his household codes that he passed on to his descendants. Quote, Do not excessively covet swords and daggers made by famous masters. Even if you own a sword or dagger worth 10,000 pieces of silver, it can be overcome by 100 spears, each worth 100 pieces. Therefore, use the 10,000 pieces to procure 100 spears and arm 100 men with them, 
you can, in this manner, defend yourself in time of war. For followers of the Hojo clan, the spear had one other benefit. The Hojo carefully calculated requirements of income to the number of warriors raised, but those equations did not stipulate what the precise mix of weapons was to be. The only requirements, if you got a land grant from the Hojo, were how many foot soldiers and how many mounted soldiers you were expected to provide. Spears were the cheapest weapon foot troops could be equipped with, and unsurprisingly, the majority of Hojo infantry was equipped with them. This actually will become something of an issue for the Hojo down the line. We have letters chastising Hojo followers for not including enough missile troops among their levies, and thus creating an unbalanced force almost entirely composed of spearmen. The other interesting thing about the Hojo was that they did have a relatively strong cavalry force because of their geographic location. Japanese warhorses are relatively small in stature. They're actually closely related to Mongolian war ponies, and like their Mongol counterparts, they could not sustain long charges over any serious distance. European warhorses had much better endurance. However, Japanese warhorses do have a very even and smooth gait, which is ideal for shooting bows from horseback, and very sure footing, which is very important in a place as mountainous as Japan. One region of Japan in particular was known for breeding tougher horses than average and having more skilled riders than the rest of the country, the Kanto. As an aside, this is actually the origin of the idea that another famous clan of this period, the Takeda, had particularly excellent cavalry. One specific source, not a Takeda one, makes note during a specific battle of a detachment of Takeda warriors from the Kanto Plains, where the Takeda had a foothold, who were expert riders and who, rather uniquely, would charge directly into enemy formations on horseback instead of the two more common options, riding into position and then dismounting to fight on foot, or shooting at your foes with a bow and arrow from horseback. This was considered to be an unusual enough tactic to be remarked on, and was attributed to the unusual toughness of both Kanto horses and Kanto riders. Being a Kanto family, the Hojo drew their own horsemen from the Kanto, so it will not astonish you to hear that their armies did have a lot of horses in them. Thanks to the Hojo mobilization rosters, we have a pretty good idea of the proportion of horses in the army, as mobilizing a certain number of horseback warriors was a part of the responsibilities assigned to a person in exchange for receiving a fief. On average, Hojo armies seem to have been about 20% cavalry, which is high by the standards of the period, but not beyond the pale, and certainly would make sense in a region known for tough horses. The way in which these units were organized to fight is also somewhat unique. In the past, armies had been organized primarily around kin groups. Families would be called up and fight together under their family head, who would in turn be responsible to the lord of the region for his family's martial service. The Hojo organized their forces geographically instead. Units that came from the same region fought together, a more rationalized arrangement that also made it easier to levy smaller forces for regional issues, say a raid or a rebellion. Later, Hojo Daimyo would take things a step further. The third Hojo lord, who we will talk about later, would name eight bannermen from among his senior most retainers. These eight bannermen, five with a color assigned to their banner, three without, would essentially serve as Hojo field marshals, each commanding a chunk of the overall Hojo army. 
This whole structure made it easier to micromanage different parts of the army efficiently, and the colored banners even had a sort of uniform. They required matching armor of their members. Again, if all of this is making your eyes glaze over, it's essentially a way of efficiently organizing the Hojo clan military to make it as effective as possible. Rather than a bunch of individual families reporting for service, the forces of the clan were organized into easily directable chunks of troops that could be moved around with relative ease. The final piece of the Hojo administrative puzzle was their substantial network of castles. Each region had a few larger fortresses, culminating in the massive central complex at Odawara, and then smaller sub-castles arrayed around them. The Hojo controlled their domains by spreading this structure throughout their territory. These fortresses would serve as a home base for the local Hojo appointees, a rallying point for Hojo forces in the event that it was necessary to rally the troops, and a fortress could serve as a check on a newly conquered population. It's hard to kick your new masters out, when they have big ol' walls to hide behind while waiting for backup. And, of course, fortresses were a deterrent for invaders. Any invading force would have to confront these castles and either besiege them slowly one by one, wasting valuable time while reinforcements assembled for a counterattack, or bypass them, leaving their invasion vulnerable to an attack in the rear. These castles also served as a sort of fast relay network for information around the domain, each castle had the equipment, particularly fire signals, to pass along information about any disturbance to the next. Think of the fire relay scene from Lord of the Rings and you'll get my idea. This particular idea was nothing new. Signal fire relays had been around since the Mongol invasions. The Hojo took things to a new level, though. In particular, they apparently had a chemical concoction that used, I kid you not, dried wolf dung, to change the color of the smoke from fires in order to pass more sophisticated information via their relay network. They also used musical instruments to pass information along shorter distances. In particular, large taiko drums would serve a similar purpose to that of drummers in the armies of the European Enlightenment. Now, I don't want you to hear all of this and get an idea that the Hojo were these brilliant, undefeatable military geniuses, this system does have flaws. The focus on spears and the lack of bows as a result meant certain kinds of battles could be very hard to fight. Anything that required skirmishing from a distance, like a siege, for example. The lack of stipulations about quality of armor probably meant that a lot of troops were equipped with lighter protection, like armor made from paper, which, while cheap and effective for what it is, is still literally paper. Thus, there would have been a reliance on quantity of troops over quality. And while a force being 20% cavalry was nothing to sneeze at, the Hojo army, like most Sengoku-era armies, was primarily on foot, and that made it fairly slow to move around. The image we get, therefore, is not some sort of well-organized lightning force capable of zipping around dealing devastating blows to the enemy a la Genghis Khan, but of a methodical and somewhat plodding army that would assemble, roll into a territory, and then be very hard to dislodge. This is, from the records, the image we get of the Hojo army, a slowly advancing force that would move into a territory, push the old owners out, build a fortress to secure its new hold, and then either move on or demobilize until the next campaign. For a time, this plodding, methodical structure proved highly effective. The second Hojo lord, Ujitsuna, 
was able to build off his father's work by pushing the family domains further north into the Kanto. After taking Kamakura for the family, he continued to move north, securing the hold over Sagami and pressing into Musashi province, today more or less modern Tokyo. Ujitsuna is, we're fairly certain, the one who first loudly announced the family's intentions by renaming the clan to the Hojo, and the one who began rebuilding Kamakura as part of that claim to the legacy of the Hojo family. He's also the one who really kicked off the family's conflict with the more southerly branch of the Uesugi, the Ogigayatsu Uesugi, who were the dominant force in Musashi province. Key to the Ogigayatsu hold over southern Musashi was a recently fortified castle near a small, sleepy fishing village called Edo, of no particular significance except for the fact that a. it guarded the southerly approaches to Ogigayatsu territory, and b. in about 150 years it would be pretty important. In 1524, Ujitsuna took his forces north to besiege Edo Castle. The lord of the Ogigayatsu Uesugi would ride south in response and attempt to defeat these Hojo upstarts, but apparently was so eager to get into the fight that he forgot to make sure there wasn't a force behind him laying an ambush. And to boot, when he was then, you know, ambushed, he found in his retreat that the castellan of Edo Castle himself had accepted a bribe and gone over to the Hojo. So, all in all, good start for the Hojo, less good for the Uesugi. Taking Edo Castle gave the Hojo a powerful foothold from which to start their war with the Ogigeatsu. Far more useful was Ujitsuna's careful politicking. He was able to convince more than a few Uesugi loyalists to come over to his side through a combination of incentive, lower taxes, better treatment, that sort of thing, and outright bribery. Still, it took the better part of a decade for things to really start to turn the way of the Hojo. In part, this was because the Ogigayatsu and their allies fought very hard against the Hojo. For example, a close Ogigayatsu ally would deal a humiliating blow to the PR of the Hojo, so to speak, by landing an army behind the lines of the Hojo advance and raiding the city of Kamakura home to the old Hojo clan and thus a major source of legitimacy for the new Hojo clan. That raid destroyed much of Kamakura, including the famed Tsurugaoka Hachiman Shrine that had been put in place by the head of the first military government, Minamoto no Yoritomo. In terms of material damage, this was bad, but not devastating. In terms of damage to the legitimacy of a relatively young clan out to prove its own bona fides, well, you can imagine. There was one further problem Ujitsuna had to contend with in all of this, the breakdown of the Imagawa alliance that had once secured one of his flanks. Imagawa Ujichika, who had remembered the founder of the Hojo, Soun, so fondly, died in 1526. His son and successor, whose name I will not even bother you with, reigned rather inconsequentially for the next ten years, but then he took ill and died, and he was replaced by someone we've talked about before. Imagawa Yoshimoto. Now, Imagawa Yoshimoto is often best remembered as that guy Oda Nobunaga curb-stomped on his way to power, and while his end was definitely memorable, it's a bit unfair to reduce him to just that. Yoshimoto was, by all accounts, a clever leader in his own right. One of the clever things Yoshimoto realized was that, all protests to the contrary aside, it was just ridiculous to pretend the Hojo clan were his subordinates in any meaningful way. 
The Hojo Lord Ujitsuna may have said all the right things, addressing the Imagawa Daimyo as my lord and all that good stuff, but they were clearly angling for power in their own right, and had no interest in genuinely subordinating their interests to Imagawa leadership. So Yoshimoto would start fortifying his border with the Hojo soon after his ascension to power, signaling an end to the alliance that had in many ways ensured the rise of the Hojo to dominance in the first place. Very shortly thereafter, Imagawa Yoshimoto would begin reaching out to other clans to build alliances against the Hojo, including, among others, the Takeda of Kai province to the north, where a new fellow by the name of Shingen was in the process of coming to power and securing his hold over the family. Takeda Shingen would rise from these humble origins to become one of the most famous war leaders in Japanese history. This confluence of events had the potential to be very dangerous for Ujitsuna and the Hojo. They were now surrounded by potentially hostile forces on every side. Their position was increasingly strong in the provinces they did have a presence in. In 1536, Ujitsuna took Kawagoe Castle, the central fortress of North Musashi, and solidified his hold on his third province as a result, but he now had to contend with being able to defend those provinces from all sides. So, for a while, Ujitsuna was forced to play a high-stakes game of whack-a-mole, running down south to fight off the Imagawa, and then back up north to defend Kawagoe and his holdings in North Musashi. He was able to defeat some of his rivals and secure substantial chunks of three more provinces, Shimosa, Awa, and Kazusa, but against the Uesugi and Imagawa, headway came slowly, if at all. Ujitsuna would not live to see the end of it. In 1541, he took ill and soon passed away. His son and successor was Hojo Ujiyasu, who at all of 26 was talented and not untested, but still pretty raw. Ujiyasu had taken part in his first battle at 15 and did have a record of accomplishment on the battlefield. Ujitsuna, with an eye towards continuity, had begun to pass off more and more administrative responsibility to his son, and so Ujiyasu already had an idea of how to handle the business of lordship by the time he actually became a lord. But still, he's 26. That's a young age to be in charge of anything, let alone your family's future as one of Japan's wealthiest and most powerful families. It did not take long for the Uesugi to test this young boy. In 1545, the Ogigeatsu Uesugi assembled the bulk of their remaining armies to attack Kawagoe Fortress the key to the Hojo presence in northern Musashi province. The hope was to break this key link in the Hojo chain, and thus begin to roll the Hojo tide back. And to be fair to the Ogigeatsu, this was not an unreasonable idea. The clan played pretty much every card in its hand to assemble a force for this purpose. They made peace with the other Uesugi branch, the Yamanouchi, and, in the name of family unity against outside threats, convinced the Yamanouchi to contribute forces to their campaign. They called in other allies as well, including a branch of the Ashikaga family that had settled in the Kanto Plain region. The chronicles of the Hojo clan put the resulting invasion force at north of 80,000, though that number is probably over-exaggerated. This force laid siege to Kawagoe, which was defended by a few thousand Hojo warriors, led by Daimyo Ujiyasu's adopted brother. That brother, Hojo Tsunanari, had originally been intended to serve as the heir when his father was childless, 
but he'd been sidelined after Ujiasu's birth as Ujitsuna's natural son. Fortunately for Ujiyasu, Tsunanari was not the jealous type and was more than happy to serve his brother. However, all the loyalty in the world was not going to tip the scales on a balance of forces that, regardless of how exaggerated it was, definitely favored the enemies of the Hojo. Ujiyasu rallied his own forces, but was able to muster only a few thousand troops. The Hojo Chronicles say 8,000, but that's a number that's probably under-exaggerated. Still, Ujiyasu was almost definitely outnumbered when he marched north to try and save Kawagoe. Ujiyasu was nobody's fool. He was already aware that attempting a traditional battle with odds like this didn't really favor him very well. So he hatched a bold plan, a nighttime attack on the besieging forces, one that would use the Hojo talent with smoke signals to coordinate with the forces inside the castle. Hopefully the darkness would conceal the size of Ujiyasu's force and magnify the chaos it created, especially if the forces defending Kawagoe Castle caught on to what was happening and launched their own attack. That was the theory, and it sounds all well and good, but in practice there is a lot that can go wrong with a plan like this. In the darkness it can be very hard to tell who is who, and there's a real chance that parts of the Hojo army would get lost trying to find the enemy and start fighting each other. After all, it's not like you can have torches out to see where you're going. So substantial chunks of your army can run into each other or just plain get lost. However, Ujiyasu's men pulled it off. Hojo Chronicles credit this to a pair of orders given by Ujiyasu before the start of the battle. First, none of his men were to wear heavy armor of any sort during the attack. Armor like that was for a stand-up fight, and if things got that far, well, they were already lost. Far more important, to be able to move quickly through the enemy camp. Second, nobody was to stop and take the head or any other trophy from a defeated foe. This was a pretty radical departure. Head-taking during battle was the chief way for individual samurai to mark themselves as warriors worthy of consideration and reward by their masters. Without these trophies, samurai would have no tokens to validate any claims of particular distinction, a central part of both samurai self-image and the practical realities of making a living as a guy who kills people for money. If these two orders are real, and they're not beyond the realm of possibility for sure, they're a testament both to the substantial command intelligence of Ujiyasu and the loyalty he commanded from his own men. Regardless of the exact steps that Hojo Ujiyasu took to ensure his gamble would pay off, it did pay off. The Hojo night attack succeeded in breaking the besieging army, which fell apart into a panicked rout, with many of the soldiers involved believing they'd been attacked by a way more substantial Hojo army. Very shortly thereafter, the Ogigayatsu Esugi, having played their last cards, fell apart as a clan, ending the long war between their family and the Hojo. But there were still a few more battles and one final tragedy to come in the war for the Kanto. We'll cover those and the final fate of the Hojo family next time. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the final installment in the rise and fall of the Hojo clan. Mm-hmm.